0: Said the the woods is about four thousand square feet, and the first thought that went through my head was, you could put a lot of cans in there.
1: <laughs> yeah, you you <laughs> could put a lot of cans in there. It's uh.
0: Welcome to the Exploring Washington State Podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Well, welcome back to this episode of the Exploring Washington State Podcast. My guest today is Felix Madrid. Felix, you are the general manager for uh, Two Beers Brewing and Seattle Cider. What, what's the official company name there?
1: Well, it's a little bit tricky, but both of those are the official company names. Yeah, okay. there's two two separate uh, two separate entities under the same umbrella.
0: And are you the GM for both? I am. Yes. Okay. All right. All right. So what's your story? How did you end up wearing both of those hats? Plus probably all the other hats that you have to wear when you're, you know, the GM. Yeah.
1: There's a lot of, there's a lot of hats in a small company um, or small companies. Um, well, it's, it's been a, it's been a pretty um, amazing ride, honestly, to, to get to where I'm at. Um, I, I, uh, i came to work um, for two beers and seattle cider um, almost 10 years ago and oh. i was connected with the companies um, through a close friend of mine um, andrew argoeis and he was the the head brewer at two beers at the time
2: okay
1: and andy was um <clears throat> excuse me andy was the uh the head brewer and kind of all, all hats wearing sort of individual. Um, this was, this was back in a time where two beers was, I think, uh, maybe seven or eight employees. Um, pretty, pretty small compared to where we're at now. Um, wow. and yeah. they, uh, they were going through an expansion phase. Um, there's been many since then, but, um, the brewery was growing and, uh, the cider company, Seattle cider had, had just been, founded at this time um and so there was sort of um some of the brewery resources going to uh going to start the, the cider company
2: um okay
1: and there was a, a couple of projects uh sort of industrial infrastructure kind of projects that needed to be done in the brewery's facility and andy um i i was working as a as a freelance Metal fabricator at the time. Um, I have a background in machining and welding and um, uh, sort of just general fabrication. And Andy had said um, to Joel Vandenbrink, who is the the founder of Two Beers um, and and one of the founders of Seattle Cider, um, you know, hey, I've got this got this friend who I think would be, you know, quite uh, quite capable of getting these projects done. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so he uh, he put me in touch with Joel, and um, I ended up coming coming to work for Two Beers as just a contract um, contract labor at the time. And after a couple of months doing um, various projects for the brewery, uh, they offered me uh, a full time position as sort of like a, a facilities engineer kind of uh, kind of job.
0: Wow. Okay. Uh, What, so for example, when you're talking fabrication and, and metal in a, in a, in a brewery setting, you weren't like building tanks, were you? What were, what, what type of work were you actually doing?
1: Well, um, not, not initially building tanks. Um, that's, that's actually, uh, uh, kind of, yeah, kind of a funny story there. Um, so, and so initially the, the first project that I was brought in to work on was the, um, bulk grain handling system. So, um, before I, before I came in and and started working on the system, the brewers were um, getting all of the grain that's used to produce our beers Uh, they were getting all that grain in 50 pound um, sacks essentially so it was all coming in on a pallet in these bags and every single one of those bags was you know cut open poured into uh, a grain mill which isn't it's not like a flour mill, you know. You're not grinding the grain to a powder, but you're just trying to to break the individual kernels of uh, barley, and that was all done completely manually. And then that the the milled grain was poured into into the brew house, into the mash tun, um, and so it was an is an incredibly laborious process, and um, the, the project that I was brought into to work on initially was that, um, we needed to get a grain silo. Um, so I think anybody familiar with farming in any way, you know, it's basically just a huge metal structure that's, that's holding dry, um, dry bulk grain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so we got the, the silo installed outside of our facility, it's external to the building. And then, um, you know, you don't have to be a, an engineer to to figure out that you need some way to get that that grain inside of the building, and and then ultimately to where you know where you're going to use it. And so, um, that's done uh, with a series of augers, essentially just tubes with a you know with a corkscrew on the inside. And um, so the the system the the grain silo was purchased prior to my uh, coming on as a contract laborer. Um, and then the system that was um, that was purchased along with the silo uh, was essentially brought to the facility in in just a bunch of pieces. Then and, and it's not like uh, going to Ikea, you know, where you've got a, a really nice. Um, pictogram of how to how to assemble this thing it's and there was no um not only no indication on how it needed to go together but there's there's a lot of custom (laughs) you know fabrication if you will to to putting something like that together it's it's um just (laughs) sort of generic lengths of of augers and and you know you you've got this very, very specific application for all the equipment. So that's what I, that's what I was uh, brought in to do. Um, <clears throat> it was actually really, really uh, kind of an interesting um, start because there was a, uh, another gentleman, Mike Cameron, who um, is good friends with Joel and and I became good friends with as well. And he was um, sort of the, the present facilities engineer at the time um and and the reason why um they were looking to bring in um some additional help was that basically the brewery was growing quickly and and mike wasn't able to to handle all of the things at once and so um i remember the day that i uh that i came down and talked with joel and mike about this project and they walked me down to a warehouse space that was um uh it was not connected to the rest of the brewery but it was just a i don't know i think four or five thousand square feet of warehouse that they were renting down in our in our complex and uh we walk in through the mandor and throw the lights on and there's just there's there's huge industrial parts of this system just laying out on the floor everywhere and uh mike was basically <laughs> like this is everything you've got. We need to get grain from the silo to the brew house. And, uh, you know, do you think you, you're going to be able to do that? And I spent maybe 20 minutes with the, with the parts walking around and <clears throat> just putting eyes on it. And, uh, I remember saying, yeah, I think, uh, I think I can do it. So that's, that was the first main project. And, and to go back to your, um, to, to go back to your, uh, question earlier, um, about building tanks uh i ended up actually building a tank um about uh two years in uh maybe a year and a half two years something like that into actually uh my full-time um employment there but um that was a that was a huge undertaking as well um that was another instance of hey we need we need a bigger tank um, and we, you know, basically, do you think you can do this? And, uh, I ended up, ended up doing it. So, yeah. All right. But so I, that was the only, that was the only tank I ever
0: worked on really. All right. So here's the thing. We, we know how this has all turned out. You've been there almost 10 years, so it's obviously worked out. Okay. But yep. when you, when you, when you said, yes, I can assemble these random pieces laying on the warehouse floor. Did you give them a timeline? Did they give you a timeline? We need this done by Tuesday.
1: Um, it wasn't that it wasn't that uh, short of a timeline. Um, it was. What? I I do remember uh, Joel saying like basically we need this we need this online as fast as possible.
0: <clears throat> okay.
1: I don't remember the the, the specifics of, of what was agreed upon, but but I, I do uh, I do remember there being some some discussion about needing it as fast as possible. And I think um, I'm trying to rem- I mean it's it's been it's been almost a decade. Uh, oh. I, I think I got it done in a, in about three weeks. Was was the timeline okay. for the for the completion of the project? So,
0: any time during that th- three weeks did you go? What have I gotten myself into?
1: oh yeah multiple times yeah (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah when i was cutting cutting holes in the side of the building uh to pass the augers through and there was (laughs) um there was one (laughs) one moment where mike was helping me we we ended up having to um we ended up having to install a, a pretty large uh motorized gearbox for one of the augers um like up in the ceiling essentially of the, of the building, um, in Mm. between, between some rafters, because there was just no other way to get the, the components to fit correctly. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was, I was up in the ceiling pulling fiberglass (laughs) insulation that was 60 years old out and it was, you know, middle of summer and it's a million degrees and the brew house is just cranking out you know, 160 degree steam right below me and I was miserable. And it was, that was definitely a moment where I was like, man, this is not worth, this is not worth it.
0: Job satisfaction was not high that day. All right.
1: Not, not that day,
0: not that day. No. So you started off as a contractor and then, you know, ultimately they, they realized that you were good at what you did and they needed, you know, there was an opportunity to bring you on full time. How did your career, so Let's let's talk about your career, but let's also talk about two two beers because I, I'm gonna guess that your career path has followed the growth of the of the brewery.
1: Yes. Um and, and so, both the brewery and the cider company. Essentially the cider company's founding in, in twenty thirteen was what um what continued the the growth of, of the of my career specifically here.
0: What was your next so at the time okay, and I don't know that you're gonna know, you know, I'm not expecting you to know the exact gallons. Well, maybe I am, but um about how much beer were they brewing back in twenty thirteen?
1: Um let's see. The brewery was doing uh I think roughly five uh five thousand barrels annually um okay. at that time. Barrel US US barrels thirty one
0: gallons. Um okay. so Yeah, a lot of beer. A lot of beer. And now approximately what is the brewery doing?
1: The brewery has actually um over the same over the total period has uh shrunk. Um and that is uh largely just in the last two two years. Um the the brewery specifically, um, because again we have two right. different entities, Seattle cider and, and two beers, the brewery was heavily, um, reliant on draft, um, draft product, uh, prior to the pandemic. Okay.
2: Um,
1: and so the, and, and the, the brewery two beers specifically is an, and has been for its entirety, um, has been a relatively small brewery as far as breweries in Washington state go. Um, and most of the time, um, smaller breweries are more heavily reliant on draft, uh, rather than packaged product distribution. And obviously Mm -hmm. through the pandemic, um, when all bars and restaurants closed, um, that's, that's, you know, hugely detrimental to, to any entity, any brewery specifically that is, that's reliant on, you know, people drinking in bars and restaurants. So all that as a, as a you know, uh, a situational context, uh, the brewery now is only doing about, um, uh, 2,500, 3,000, something like that.
0: Now in, at the time that we're recording, this is, you know, summer of 2022. Yep. Has, has the brew and I hate to use the word pivot. It just, it's so overused, you know, <laughs> and we've all pivoted, but has, has, has two beers pivoted to cans, more than draft now
1: yes um we i mean we had the the benefit and the opportunity the luxury of having um having a canning line um we we have two two canning lines actually um Mm -hmm. and that uh that allowed us to to, to make that pivot and there's your favorite
2: mm-hmm. word <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, that allowed us to make that pivot um, pretty, pretty rapidly. And, and the brewery had been, you know, um, producing about a little over half of its total volume in packaged product um, yeah. that, that was being sold, you know, at retail in, in grocery and whatnot. Um, but we, we, tried, you know, as, as you would, if you have that capability, we tried to just shift as much of the liquid volume, um, our, our production volume into, um, cans, but it's not, um, it's not as easy as, you know, just putting more, more beer into cans. You've got to be able to obviously sell that beer. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can, you can end up with a lot of, a lot of beer in cans that, uh, um, that you're going to end up having to drink yourself. Um,
0: well, I mean, I, I can think of worse problems, but yeah, yeah at <laughs> yeah. the same time, well, and, um, and one of the things, one of the things that I've learned through the years through having conversations with, with people like in, in the beer and cider, but also previous to me doing the podcast, one just doesn't go and say, Hey, we need a thousand cans today. Can you drop them off? There's this whole, uh, you got to order a lot of cans. And so you've got to be able to sell a lot of beer if you're if your cans are i'm looking at your deception pass um summer ale right now and that does not look like it's a label on the can it looks like it's printed yeah that's a printed can right
1: so this actually is um this or is, is a, a shrink it's a shrink sleeved oh. um so okay. it's somewhere it's somewhere in between um and and to to go back to sort of the um primer for this thought that you had there yeah this has been um through through the pandemic especially this has been a um i would say an even more uh common problem that smaller breweries are dealing with in terms of uh being able to source cans um so there's there's sort of three main um avenues for you know getting essentially graphics on a can. One, you can have cans plate printed um mm-hmm. from from directly from the manufacturer. And there's two two main manufacturers in the United States. They pretty much they hold nearly hundred percent of the uh can production volume. Um there's right. crown, crown core conceal. Uh, and then there's Ball Corporation, um, mm-hmm. and both of these companies handle everything from uh, very, very small, extremely small operations, much smaller than than either Two Beers or Seattle Cider, um, all the way up to you know the Pepsi's and Cokes and Anheuser-Busch's. Right. Um, and so, if you get cans through directly from one of those two can manufacturers, um, you will you will get those cans plate. Excuse me. Plate printed. Um, okay. And that is per unit the cheapest cost cans that you can buy. So the cans that you're getting directly from them, plate printed from them, um, are going to to be your best value. But the the issue is is that you have to buy a lot of them, millions of cans. Right. Um, and- yeah, <laughs> and it's it's just not it's not feasible for a lot of small operations. Right. Um. And, uh, in fact, through the pandemic, um, both of the companies, both Ball and Crown, uh, upped their minimum order quantity for being able to purchase plate printed cans directly from them significantly. Crown, um, Crown went up, um, about four four or five times their minimum order quantity. <clears throat> and so, ball went up about 10 times.
0: So help me out here. What is a minimum quantity from one of those guys?
1: Um, It depends on if you're in a 16 ounce or in a 12 ounce can, um, because right. they, they do minimum order quantities by, by the pallet. Um, okay. There's more 12 ounce cans on a pallet than there, than there are 16 ounce cans just because of the height.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but Ball is currently doing a um, a five truckload minimum order quantity. There's 25 pallets per truck. Um, so 125
0: 100, pallets of cans.
1: Correct. Yep. Um, and, and how and,
0: many how many cans are on a pallet? Um,
1: <clears throat> this is uh, let's see. There's almost 9,000 12 ounce cans, and there's just over 6,000 16 ounce cans. On a pallet per per pallet.
0: So you Um, really are talking about, and math is going to escape me here, but you're talking about 200,000 cans.
1: uh, Yeah. So let's do, (sighs) let's do about 9,000 times. Yeah. Um, So if you're talking 12 ounce cans, you're talking 1.125 million cans. That's And if you're talking 16 (laughs) ounce, um, you're talking seven, basically 750,000
0: cans. Okay. That's, that's not, that doesn't seem in the realm of, um, a local, a local brewery.
1: No, absolutely not.
0: No. So Um, then we have two other options.
1: You have two other options. Um, First, being as you were just referencing the deception pass cans that we have, um, going with a with a wrap, and essentially this is a, um, a piece of plastic, a sleeve that fits mm-hmm. over the can, and then that sleeve is uh, heated and it mm-hmm. shrinks, and it wraps uh, very tightly the can, and it it looks really nice. Um, yep but uh it's extremely expensive um this can this aluminum can with this wrap is um more than three times the cost of a plate printed can in the same format um and so the the wrap is a is a good option for smaller operations um but it is it's really really tough uh to to make money, um, to be honest, in a wrapped can, um, the, it's something that I think very, very few people actually, you know, really think about, but, uh, the margins in, in craft beer are not high. Um, Mm -hmm. and if you, you know, if you up, uh, to, to give people kind of a ballpark, um, a 12 ounce can that's plate printed, uh, depending on, you know, the quantities that you're buying annually, um, you know, your, your contract, whether you have one or not, whatever, you're going to be somewhere between like 12 and 14 cents a piece, uh, for, for the can plate printed from one of either ball or, or crown, um, and a wrapped can in, uh, again, ballpark, depending on your kind of supplier relations and whatnot, you're going to be somewhere between like 30 and 40 cents a piece. Um, And so if you, if you go up by, you know, in cost from again, say ballpark, 13, 14 cents to Mm -hmm. 35 cents. um, That is a difference of several dollars per, per case of your product case being yeah. the the increments sold to to distributors it's a couple dollars per case and that can be the difference between you know essentially making a profit or not making a profit wow
2: um well,
1: so uh the i was going to say the the last the last option other than the wrap is a sticker um it's mm-hmm. just a sticker label and that's something that's pretty commonly done right. um and and that's somewhere between in terms of cost it's somewhere between the wrap and the plate print so you just buy basically a, a blank aluminum can <clears throat> mm-hmm. um and then you know your your labels can range anywhere from like four or five cents a piece to you know probably yeah, well, 12 13 if you really want to get fancy
0: so without we don't want to turn this into a complete. Well, maybe maybe the whole episode's gonna be about cans. I don't know. <laughs> we never know where these episodes go, right? We just never know.
1: The, we could talk but, for hours on cans and I won't do that.
0: Okay, cool. Um I might like that, but everyone like we'll just watch the the episode drop off listens like whoop. No. Okay. I do have a couple questions though. Uh f- when you sleeve a can like like the Deception Pass can, are you sleeving it or are you buying it sleeved?
1: we're buying it sleeved from a vendor. So the vendor okay. is buying cans directly from Ball or Crown and then mm-hmm. they're just buying those blanks and then they're applying the sleeves and then shipping okay. them in, in very small quantities to their final customer.
0: Okay. So they're kind of buying the the blanks in bulk. Yep. And and then breaking them out into smaller lots for 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 two beers or for XYZ or okay. Exactly. If, if you guys were going to put stickers on cans, would you be buying them pre-stickered or would you be applying them?
1: We, we would be applying them. With the, with the labels um, on cans, you have to do them um, after the cans have been filled with beer because the can has to be hard. Okay. Um, and so with the with the sleeves, yeah, they're done before the cans are filled. Okay. Um, and then with the stickers, you have to apply them in a in right. a labeler post fill. All
0: right. Let's okay. Cause, okay, that's actually I'm glad because that helps me answer ask my next question. Which is, let's say you guys were going to put stickers on cans. Mm-hmm. How many cans do you have to buy at that point? Can you, you? It's not like you can go down to your local convenience can store and and buy you know a, a, a thousand cans. Can or can you?
1: Um. Uh, again, to sort of answer it really top line, it, it, it kind of depends on who your, who your suppliers are. You can go to ball or crown and, and buy, um, buy just they're referred to as silver bullets, just like a, okay. a blank, completely right. silver can, um, And you're going to get a really good price on those if you go and buy them unprinted from Baller Crown. But again, you're going to have to buy them in very large quantities.
0: Um, By very large, could it be as, as quote, small as a trailer or a semi trailer? Or do you have to buy bulk trailers?
1: You could you could buy um, you could buy one full semi trailer, 25 pallets.
0: Okay, Okay. Um, that's a
1: lot of cans. Still still a lot of cans, still still a lot of cans. Uh, but more often than not operations that are doing their, their own labeling, their stickering, um, they're buying from, uh, a, basically an intermediary. So there's a bunch of companies out there, um, to name a few, there's can source, there's vessel, there's gamer, there's, um, okay craft canning. I mean, those guys are all getting plugs right now. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but but
0: that for, for your can those, needs call.
1: <laughs> yeah, any one of those. I mean, those are pretty much the the main four here in the Pacific right. North Northwest, but yeah, they're buying the the really large lots and then they're just sub subdividing those those huge okay. orders out to smaller operations.
0: Because, you know, when you think about what you're doing as a brewery, rent in Seattle's cheap. So by oh, yeah. the square Super foot, cheap. Rent, rent's yep. cheap. So you've got all the space in the world to stack cans, you know? No, yep. you've got, there's a balancing act here. You, you, you can't, I mean, you, you, got, you only got so many square feet. You can have cans, right? Absolutely. And then, and then we need a, tra- a semi-trailer full. Well, maybe you have the space for that, but you probably don't, or you probably didn't. Yeah, long okay,
1: so. term storage of cans is is um, is a huge cost that's often it's often overlooked um, mm-hmm. uh, because, yeah, as you said, you know, rent here in Seattle is just it's just dirt cheap. cheap. Nobody wants cheap. to be here. And no. Um, no. Uh, yeah, so it, it's incredibly it's incredibly costly to, um, you know, even even if you're buying the large uh, bulk quantities of cans um, mm-hmm. and you're saving. You know on the per per unit cost initially um that's it yeah it's absolutely something to to factor into the long term you know to, to the unit cost essentially if you're going to be storing you know 100 pallets of cans um and your per you know your annual per square foot you know yeah, cost of dollars. your building is whatever 14 to 20 dollars a square foot annually yeah It adds up very, very quickly. So yes, um, most of the time it's, it's significantly, uh, better for smaller operations to just purchase cans from that middleman, um, as, as needed. Uh, so if I called,
0: if I called, we're not going to give anybody else a plug. If I called can supplier X on Friday, Mm -hmm. when would I get my cans?
1: um again depends on who you're dealing with um but uh most most places especially if you're just dealing with the blank the silver bullet kind of cans and you're going to be doing the labeling most places are going to be able to get you cans in uh shipped to your facility probably within like 10 days to two weeks um okay so so you're you know pretty quick turnaround
0: Okay. Pretty quick, but not, not, it's not Amazon prime delivery. You know, the Amazon's not going to send a fleet of trucks and offload cans for me in two hours. Okay.
1: No, no. Right. Um, and, and I think one, one other thing to, to note is through, um, through the pandemic, because, um, you know, I, had uh, spoken about how we were heavily with two beers specifically, we were heavily draft, uh, reliant prior to, to you know, sort of the, the, Initial stages of restaurants and bars closing down, um, we were not the only ones who made that pivot. Obviously, to to try to to put as much of our product, as much of our beer into cans as possible. And so, as you can imagine, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, just just taking Washington State for instance, if you've got suddenly, you know, two hundred more craft breweries that are trying to get their hands on cans um, to, to, you know, essentially you might have alive. The word desperately,
0: desperately,
1: trained. yes. Desperately. That's, that, that is a, a very, very important distinction. Um, yeah, that is going to pretty dramatically increase the demand for cans. Right. And so right. there was, um, that, that large scale pivot, um, that happened in quarter two of 2020, um, in addition to the fact that nobody was drinking anything large scale in bars and restaurants, and so the demand for packaged product across the board, everything, soda, you know, yeah. uh, large scale national uh, national beer brands, obviously the the um, hard seltzer craze, Truly, White Claw, et cetera everything, the demand for all those products just skyrocketed through the pandemic, all of 2020 and into 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, and so just getting your hands on cans period, um, (laughs) whether you're paying top dollar or not, uh, was, has been very, very difficult. Um, (laughs) and, and I think anybody who's, who's been following, uh, craft beer, that's, that's been a, a trend in discussion for basically the last year and a half.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's not like you can spin up a can manufacturing plant, you know, in your back, you know, you, you're not going to open a garage. Uh, you're not going to open a can manufacturer in your garage as a startup. These are multi million dollar facilities with. So back yep. in the nineties, I used to have, I worked for a vending machine company and one of our clients was the ball plant down in Auburn. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I would go into that facility and, you know, millions of cans stacked very high in the air and they make a lot of noise when they get knocked over (laughs) just a a lot. I mean, like staggering, like, oh, my what happened a lot. Um, Yeah. So you've got, you know, 100,000 square foot warehouse space. It's this is not something you just this is there are no craft can manufacturers. (laughs) This is, you know, right. Big, big scale. Okay. Yep. Well, I i mean, I could geek out on that for a while. Let's, let's, let's talk. So your background is in, in fabrication and construction and all that. So it really wasn't a, a background in beer making, probably beer consumption and enjoyment. Um, have you ever through the decade, have you been involved in the, in the actual making of beer? Have they, have they, is that one of the hats that you had to throw on for once in a while?
1: Yeah. Um, so the, the actual brewing process, um, was not totally foreign to me. Um, I actually, um, my parents founded a, a winery in, uh, the Willamette Valley in, in Oregon, um, in 1990. Um, and so I grew up, uh, I grew up on a vineyard, a working vineyard um and and with my dad making wine
0: um is your dad's name the same as yours
1: it is yes
0: yep so felix felix madrid random well not really random in research before this right so mm-hmm. i i, I google your name and your profile on linkedin pops up but so does this other felix madrid and it was a winemaker and I went, oh that was interesting. and now to find out it's your dad okay yep all yeah. right um he's been around for a few years before me so he's
1: probably got uh he's got more on the internet i'm sure no actually Uh,
0: you you came up more than your dad okay um, all right well great i'm doing something good then
1: (laughs) um so so you grew up
0: okay that's uh
1: that's that was my background um and and so i mean just being being around uh fermentation in general um from from you know as as far back as i can remember um ha- definitely you know gave me some uh gave me a leg to stand on in terms of understanding the brewing process my dad also um he would uh he'd probably hate me for saying this but you know he he really really loves beer as well and and has been interested in um, some homebrew
0: operations <clears throat> mm-hmm look there's nothing there's there's nothing to say that you can't enjoy you know beer or wine they're not mutually exclusive they don't have to be mutually exclusive so you know correct now if you say beer and no just kidding all right so you grew up you you grew up and around this around the concepts at least yes yes and
1: um i uh I was heavily involved with the winemaking process from a pretty young age. And I knew that, um, it was not something that I wanted to, to follow in my dad's footsteps, um, uh, that's something that's been, um, I, I think maybe a point of contention in our family. My, my grandfather's name, um, he's still alive is also Felix okay um and our i would say just in general um we we have a uh an emphasis in in terms of legacy in the family Uh, my grandfather is a a a doctor and he wanted my father to be a doctor um and my my dad pursued that and decided that that was not what he wanted to do um So my, my dad's younger brother, my uncle, um, uh, he ended up becoming a a doctor and is now a, he's an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, so that, that box got checked. Uh, but then my dad, um, went off and became, became a winemaker. And I think, uh, my, you know, my grandfather's very, very proud of the, the career that, that my dad pursued and ultimately the business that he, that he, uh, developed. Um, but then it was, you know, my turn to sort of decide, okay, well, is this, am I going to follow in the footsteps of my dad? uh, or am I going to go off and do my own thing? And, um, I've always been very, uh, mechanically inclined. Um, I loved growing up on the farm. I loved, uh, taking things apart. I I was always the, the one doing oil changes on, you know, the farm equipment and, uh, um, my dad is, um, I would say mechanically inclined enough to get himself into trouble. And then, you know, he'll, oh. he'll call me, you know, what oh, did I do okay. here? Um, so, so that was my role and, and ultimately that kind of led to, to my path in metal, metal work fabrication and whatnot. Um, to to summarize that in um in sort of the most streamlined way possible i got a job at a bike shop um in high school uh and i i've always been really really um uh i guess into bikes um riding riding road bikes riding mountain bikes and i got this job uh working as a mechanic when i was 15 yeah 15 um and, uh, the, the shop was owned by my eighth grade, uh, teacher and her husband. Okay. Um, and I worked there for about four years. And then after, um, I, I wanted to continue my career in bikes, but I knew that I didn't want to be a bike mechanic for forever and ever. There's, there's not a lot of money in being a bike mechanic. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, Um, and so I, I paid for a course at, uh, UBI, which is, um, United Bicycle Institute. They're sort of like the, uh, the technical Institute that is, um, that's sort of the the most highly regarded in the bicycle industry. And they do a bunch of like, uh, different tiers of mechanical courses. They offer different, uh, different sort of like technician certifications as well as they do bicycle frame building courses. Okay. Um, and so they do, um, without getting, you know, I could talk about this literally for a whole nother, a whole nother episode, I'm sure. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they do a couple of different, different types of frame building. Um, and I chose to do, I really wanted to, to do titanium TIG welded frames. Um, and i had taken uh three or four years of metal fab classes in high school and uh, i was very familiar with welding different welding processes and so i took this course and uh, built a titanium bike frame which i still have um and it was it was really awesome that's that's Ultimately, what I wanted to do at that time, I, I had set my set my sights on becoming a frame builder professionally, um, and uh, that um, that's where that kind of started.
2: Um, so I, I'm gonna yeah.
0: I gotta I gotta interrupt you. I gotta I gotta yeah. ask you something. So you you because I found this really kind of very very interesting. Mm-hmm. You you mentioned you know you, being a bike mechanic wasn't probably gonna the most lucrative of careers and it's not about the most lucrative of careers it's i get that it's about you know there's a you need to make money but you also want to enjoy what you're doing right is is there money in being a frame builder
1: um if you're in like the top five percent
0: yes um there's a couple i know i know nothing about um, bicycles have two wheels I, I that's about okay you know when you say the top Five percent how many frame builders are out there
1: there's a lot <laughs> are might, there yeah that might that might come as a surprise but there's a lot of frame builders out there um and i mean i think huh. it, it, a lot of them end up doing it as sort of like a side a side project you know a, a more of a hobby kind of business and and ultimately okay. that's where it ended up for me i i've to I, I don't know so just to sort of skip uh skip over a lot of the middle stuff that's less um, interesting um i did end up uh i've built quite a few frames i think i've built almost 20 bike frames at this point um for various people some some uh friends and family and some clients who i had no prior relationship with who just you know found me via website etc but it's not something that i do anymore i don't have any time for it but Uh, um but there are a lot of frame builders who who operate kind of in that level who just you know who might build three or four eight frames in a year or something versus like really, really, uh, highly regarded frame builders who have, you know, there's, there's a couple of frame builders who, um, I won't necessarily give plugs to you guys can look them up if you want, but who, who have like two or three year long, um, waiting lists, you know, you're going to put a deposit down on a bike frame and you're not going to get it for 24 to 36 months.
0: All right. Company X. Once again, bikes have two, two wheels. That's there's my knowledge. Why would some, I mean, look, we all have hobbies that we spend a lot of money on and people go, why would you do that? I'm like, well, it's because it's, I, so my question is what, what is the benefit of a custom frame to a biking enthusiast? And I know this is, this is probably next to impossible question to answer. What do these frames cost?
1: Benefit uh, or, or benefits are, you know, you and I have totally different bodies and we could we could like the exact same sport and we both want to ride bikes and um you know you and i could be uh i have no idea how tall you are but you and i could be the same height overall Mm -hmm. but my legs are going to be different uh, you know different lengths um with relation to my torso my arm lengths are going to be different than yours and so with um, with sort of general off the shelf bike sizing, um, you don't have bikes are sized essentially um, for a person's overall height, and that's going to get you okay. close to to fitting okay. correctly. And there are some things that you can do on the bike itself with components. That will make the bike fit a little bit better. You know, there's some adjustability in terms of seat moving that forward and backwards on the rails that are on the seat. You can adjust the seat height up and down. You can put a different, um, stem, which essentially, uh, moves your handlebars, either more towards you or farther away. Um there's lots of different things you can do for small adjustments, but overall the bike frame, when you're talking about a a custom bike frame that is built for you, you're going to get fitted. Um, you're going to have the builder, uh, take a bunch of very, very, uh, specific, very unique measurements to your body. And then the bike frame is going to be built to
0: optimize. So it really is like, a a, a, oversimplifying this, but, buying a, a cause you can spend a lot of money on a bicycle off the shelf. A lot. to oh, me, yeah. A lot of money. Yep. So I go to the local bike store and I've got money to burn mm-hmm. and I go buy a bike for five grand. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I, I know they go more than that, but let's just say five grand Yep. or, but if I'm also going to the store and buying a, a custom suit or a suit from, you know, men's men's warehouse, let's say I can spend five mm-hmm. grand on a suit that's off the rack their tailor can make some adjustments or I can go and have somebody actually measure me and build me a suit that fits me and wouldn't exactly fit somebody yep. else. Okay. Yep. All right. So these are really then just finely tuned to the person's physical measurements. All right. Yep. I know yep. this is not, I know t- this I'm um, not, that, that, like, what are these things? Called? I'm just curious. So what does a, a, a bespoke custom frame, what's the range here?
1: that's the thing that's, that's, um, I think maybe more surprising is that there really isn't like a huge price premium. Um, Mm. you're gonna, you know, I honestly, your, your number of like $5,000 going into a bike shop and spending five grand is going to get you like that. That's pretty reasonable. That's going to get you a really nice high end, Mm -hmm. um, bike that is not custom, but you know, that's, that's, it's an extremely nice bike and it will, um, it'll ride very well. And you'll be able to get that bike with, with small adjustments, you'll be able to get that bike to fit you pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if you're talking about, uh, getting a custom frame built, um, I would say on the total bike build, you know, all, all components include
0: the, the woods is about 4000 square feet and the first thought that went through my head was you could put a lot of cans in there
1: <laughs> yeah you could, you could put a lot of cans in there it's uh
0: welcome to the exploring washington state podcast Here's your host Scott Cowan. Well, welcome back to this episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. My guest today is Felix Madrid. Felix, you are the general manager for uh, Two Beers Brewing and Seattle Cider. What what's the official company name there?
1: Well, it's a little bit tricky, but both of those are the official company names. Yeah, okay. there's two two separate uh, two separate entities under the same umbrella.
0: And are you the GM for both? I am. Yes. Okay so what's your story how did you end up wearing both of those hats plus probably all the other hats that you have to wear when you're you know GM. yeah
1: there's a lot of, there's a lot of hats in a small company um, or small companies um, well it's it's been a it's been a pretty um, amazing ride honestly to to get to where i'm at um, i uh, i came to work um for two beers and Seattle Cider um almost 10 years ago. And huh. I was connected with the companies um through a close friend of mine, um, Andrew Argoeus. And he was the the head brewer at Two Beers at the time. Okay. And Andy was
2: um
1: <clears throat> excuse me. Andy was the uh the head brewer and kind of all, all hats wearing sort of individual. Um, this was, this was back in a time where two beers was, I think, uh, maybe seven or eight employees. Um, pretty, pretty small compared to where we're at now. Um, wow. and okay. they, uh, they were going through an expansion phase. Um, there's been many since then, but, um, the brewery was growing and, uh, the cider company, Seattle cider had, had just been, Founded at this time, um, and so there was sort of um, some of the brewery resources going to uh, going to start the, the cider company, um, okay. and there was a, a couple of projects, uh, sort of industrial infrastructure kind of projects that needed to be done in the brewery's facility, and Andy, um, I I was working as a as a freelance. Metal fabricator at the time. Um, I have a background in machining and welding and um, uh, sort of just general fabrication. And okay. Andy had said um, to Joel Vandenbrink, who is the the founder of Two Beers um, and and one of the founders of Seattle Cider, um, you know, hey, I've got this got this friend who I think would be, you know, quite uh, quite capable of getting these projects done. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so he uh, he put me in touch with Joel, and um, I ended up coming coming to work for Two Beers as just a contract um, contract labor at the time. And after a couple of months doing um, various projects for the brewery, uh, they offered me uh, a full time position as sort of like a, a facilities engineer kind of uh, kind of job.
0: Wow, okay. Uh, what so for example, when you're talking fabrication and, and metal in a in a in a brewery setting, you weren't like building tanks, were you? What were what what type of work were you actually doing? Well, um,
1: not, not initially building tanks. Um, that's, that's, it's actually, uh, uh, (laughs) kind of, yeah, kind of a funny story there. Um, so, and so initially the, the first project that I was brought in to work on was the, um, bulk grain handling system. So, um, before I, before I came in and and started working on the system, the Brewers were um, getting all of the grain that's used to produce our beers. Uh, they were getting all that grain in 50 pound um, sacks, essentially. So it was all right. it was coming in on a pallet in these bags. And every single one of those bags was you know, cut open, poured into uh, a grain mill, which isn't It's not like a flour mill you know you're not grinding the grain to a powder but you're just trying to to break the individual kernels of uh, barley and that was all done completely manually and then that the the milled grain was poured into into the brew house into the mash tun Um, and so it was an is an incredibly laborious process and um the the project that i was brought into to work on initially was that um we needed to get a grain silo um so i think anybody's familiar with farming in any way you know it's basically just a huge metal structure that's that's holding dry um dry bulk grain
2: mm-hmm.
1: um so we got the the silo installed outside of our facility it's external to the building and then um you know you don't have to be an engineer to to figure out that you need some way to get that that grain inside of the building and and then ultimately to where you know where you're going to use it and so um that's done uh with a series of augers essentially just tubes with a you know with a corkscrew on the inside and um so the the system the the grain silo was purchased prior to my uh, coming on as a contract laborer. Um, and then the system that was um, that was purchased along with the silo uh, was essentially brought to the facility in in just a bunch of pieces. Then, and, and it's not like uh, going to Ikea, you know, where you've got a, a really nice. Um, pictogram of how to how to assemble this thing, it's in there was no, um, not only no indication on how it needed to go together, but there's, there's a lot of custom, <laughs> you know, fabrication, if you will, to to putting something like that together, it's, it's um, just <laughs> sort of generic lengths of, of augers and and you know, you you've got this very, very specific application for all the equipment. So that's what I, that's what I was uh, brought in to do. Um, It was actually really, really uh, kind of an interesting um, start because there was uh, another gentleman, Mike Cameron, who um, is good friends with Joel and, and I became good friends with as well. And he was um, sort of the, the present facilities engineer at the time um and and the reason why um they were looking to bring in um some additional help was that basically the brewery was growing quickly and and mike wasn't able to to handle all of the things at once and so um i remember the day that i uh that i came down and talked with joel and mike about this project and they walked me down to a warehouse space that was um uh, it was not connected to the rest of the brewery but it was just a i don't know i think 4 or 5000 square feet of warehouse that they were renting down in our in our complex and uh we walk in through the man door and throw the lights on and there's just there's there's huge industrial parts of this system just laying out on the floor everywhere and uh mike was basically <laughs> like this is everything you've got we need to get grain from the silo to the brew house and uh you know do you think you're going to be able to do that and i spent maybe 20 minutes with the with the parts walking around and just putting eyes on it and uh i remember saying yeah i think uh i think i can do it so that's that was the first main project (laughs) and and to go back to your um, to, to go back to your uh question earlier um about building tanks, uh, I ended up actually building a tank, um, about, uh, two years in, uh, maybe a year and a half, two years, something like that into actually, uh, my full-time, um, employment there. But, um, that was, a that was a huge undertaking as well. Um, and that was another instance of, Hey, we need, we need a bigger tank, um, and we, you know, basically, do you think you can do this? And, uh, I ended up, ended up doing it. So, yeah. All right. But so, I, that yeah. was the only, that was the only tank I ever worked on really.
0: All right. So here's the thing. We, we know how this has all turned out. You've been there almost 10 years, so it's obviously worked out. Okay. But yep. when you, when you, when you said, yes, I can assemble these random pieces laying on the warehouse floor. Did you give them a timeline? Did they give you a timeline? We need this done by Tuesday.
1: Um, it wasn't that it wasn't that uh, short of a timeline. Um, it was. What? I I do remember uh, Joel saying like basically we need this we need this online as fast as possible.
0: <clears throat> okay.
1: I don't remember the, the the specifics of of what was agreed upon, but but I, I do uh, I do remember there being some some discussion about needing it as fast as possible. And I think um, I'm trying to rem- I mean it's it's been it's been almost a decade. Uh, oh. I, I think I got it done in a, in about three weeks. Was was the timeline okay. for the for the completion of the project?
0: So Any time during that th- three weeks, did you go? What have I gotten myself into?
1: Oh yeah. Multiple times. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. When I was cutting, cutting holes in the side of the building uh, to pass the augers through and there was, (laughs) um, there was one, (laughs) one moment where Mike was helping me. We, we ended up having to, um, we ended up having to install a a pretty large uh, motorized gearbox for one of the augers um, like up in the ceiling essentially of the, of the building um in mm. between between some rafters because there was just no other way to get the the components to fit correctly um and yeah i mean i was i was up in the ceiling pulling <laughs> fiberglass insulation that was 60 years old out and oh. it was you know middle of summer and it's a million degrees and the brew house is just cranking out, you know, 160 degree steam right below me. And I was miserable. And it was, that was definitely a moment where I was like, man, this is not worth, this is not worth it.
0: Job satisfaction was not high that day. All right.
1: Not, not that day. Not that day,
0: that day. So you started off as a contractor and then, you know, ultimately they, they realized that you were good at what you did and they needed, you know, there was an opportunity to bring you on full time. How did your career? So let's let's talk about your career, but let's also talk about two two beers because I am going to guess that your career path has followed the growth of the of the brewery.
1: Yes, um, and and so, both the brewery and the cider company. Essentially, the cider right. company's founding in in twenty thirteen was what um, what continued the the growth of of the of my career specifically here.
0: What was your next so? At the time, okay, and I don't know that you're gonna know, you know. I'm not expecting you to know the exact gallons. Well, maybe I am. But um, about how much beer were they brewing back in 2013?
1: To, um, let's see. The brewery was doing, uh, I think, roughly five uh, five thousand barrels annually um, okay. at that time. Barrel U.S. U.S. barrels, thirty-one gallons. Um, okay. So. Yeah, a lot of I beer. Mean,
0: yeah, a lot of beer. And now approximately what is the brewery doing?
1: The brewery has actually um over the same over the total period has uh shrunk. Um okay. and that is uh largely just in the last two two years. Um okay. the the brewery specifically, um, because again we have two right. different entities, Seattle cider and, and two beers, the brewery was heavily, um, reliant on draft, um, draft product, uh, prior to the pandemic. Okay. Um, and so the, and, and the, the brewery Two beer specifically is an, and has been for its entirety, um, has been a relatively small brewery as far as breweries in Washington state go, um, and most of the time, um, smaller breweries are more heavily reliant on draft, uh, rather than packaged product distribution. And obviously Mm -hmm. through the pandemic, um, when all bars and restaurants closed, um, that's, that's, you know, hugely detrimental to, to any entity, any brewery specifically that is, that's reliant on, you know, people drinking in bars and restaurants. So all that as a, as a you know uh, a situational context uh the brewery now is only doing about um uh 2500 3000 something like that
0: now in at the time that we're recording this is you know summer of 2022 yep has, has the brew and I hate to use the word pivot it just it's so overused you know <laughs> and we've all pivoted but has 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 two beers pivoted to cans more than draft now
1: yes um we i mean we had the the benefit and the opportunity the luxury of having um having a canning line um we we have two two canning lines actually um and that uh that allowed us to to, to make that pivot and there's your favorite word (laughs) (laughs) Um, that allowed us to make that pivot, um, pretty, pretty rapidly. And, and the brewery had been, you know, um, producing about a little over half of its total volume in packaged product, um, that, that was being sold, you know, at retail in, in grocery and whatnot. Um, but we, we, tried, you know, as, as you would, if you have that capability, we tried to just shift as much of the liquid volume, um, our, our production volume into, um, cans, but it's not, um, it's not as easy as, you know, just putting more, more beer into cans. You've got to be able to obviously sell that beer. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can, you can end up with a lot of, a lot of beer in cans that, uh, um, that you're going to end up having to drink
0: yourself. Um, well, I mean, I, I can think of worse problems, but yeah. yeah at <laughs> yeah. the same time, well, and, um, and one of the things one of the things that I've learned through the years, through having conversations with with people like in in the Beer and cider but also previous to me doing the podcast, one just doesn't go and say, "Hey, we need a thousand cans today. Can you drop them off?" There's this whole uh you got to order a lot of cans, and so you've got to be able to sell a lot of beer if you if your cans are i'm looking at your deception pass um summer ale right now and that does not look like it's a label on the can it looks like it's printed yeah that's a printed can right so
1: this actually is um this is, is a, it a shrink it's a shrink oh. sleeved um so okay. it's somewhere it's somewhere in between um and and to to go back to sort of the Um, primer for this thought that you had there yeah this has been um, through through the pandemic especially this has been a um, I would say an even more uh, common problem that smaller breweries are dealing with in terms of uh, being able to source cans Um, so there's there's sort of three main um avenues for you know getting essentially graphics on a can one you can have cans plate printed um mm-hmm. from from directly from the manufacturer and there's two two main manufacturers in the United States they pretty much they hold nearly 100% of the uh can production volume um there's right. a crown crown cork and seal Uh, and then there's ball corporation. Um, Mm -hmm. and both of these companies handle everything from, uh, very, very small, extremely small operations, much smaller than, than either two beers or Seattle cider, um, all the way up to, you know, the Pepsis and Cokes and Anheuser bushes. Right. Um, and so if you get cans through directly from one of those two can manufacturers, um, you will, you will get those cans plate excuse me plate printed um okay and that is per unit the cheapest cost cans that you can buy so the cans that you're getting directly from them plate printed from them um are going to to be your best value but the the issue is is that you have to buy a lot of them millions of cans right um, and yeah, <laughs> and it's it's just not it's not feasible for a lot of small operations. Right. Um. And, uh, in fact, through the pandemic, um, both of the companies, both Ball and Crown, uh, upped their minimum order quantity for being able to purchase plate printed cans directly from them significantly. Crown, um, Crown went up, um, about four four or five times their minimum order quantity. <clears throat> and so, ball went up about 10 times.
0: So help me out here. What is a minimum quantity from one of those guys?
1: Um, It depends on if you're in a 16 ounce or in a 12 ounce can, um, because right. they, they do minimum order quantities by, by the pallet. Um, okay. There's more 12 ounce cans on a pallet than there, than there are 16 ounce cans just because of the height.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but ball is currently doing a um, a five truck load minimum order quantity there's 25 pallets per truck um so 125
0: 100, pallets of cans correct yep
1: um
0: and, and, and how many how many cans are on a pallet
1: um <clears throat> this is uh let's see there's almost 9 thousand 12 ounce cans and there's just over 6 thousand16 ounce cans. On a pallet per per pallet. So you Um, really
0: are talking about, and math is going to escape me here, but you're talking about 200,000 cans.
1: uh, Yeah. So let's do, let's do about 9,000 times. Yeah. Um, So if you're talking 12 ounce cans, you're talking 1.125 million cans. That's, And if you're talking 16 (laughs) ounce, um, you're
0: talking
1: seven, basically 750,000
0: cans. Okay. That's, that's not, that doesn't seem in the realm of, um, a local, a local brewery. No,
1: no, okay, absolutely not.
0: No. So Um, then we have two other options.
1: You have two other options. Um, First, being as you were just referencing the deception pass cans that we have, um, going with a with a wrap, and essentially this is a, um, a piece of plastic, a sleeve that fits mm-hmm. over the can, and then that sleeve is uh, heated and it mm-hmm. shrinks and it wraps uh, very tightly the can, and it it looks really nice. Um, yep but uh it's extremely expensive um this can this aluminum can with this wrap is um more than three times the cost of a plate printed can in the same format um and so the the wrap is a is a good option for smaller operations um but it is it's really really tough uh to to make money Um, to be honest, in a wrapped can, um, the, it's something that I think very, very few people actually, you know, really think about, but, uh, the margins in, in craft beer are not high. Um, Mm -hmm. and if you, you know, if you up, uh, to, to give people kind of a ballpark, um, a 12 ounce can that's plate printed, uh, depending on, you know, the quantities that you're buying annually, um, you know, your, your contract, whether you have one or not, whatever, you're going to be somewhere between like 12 and 14 cents a piece, uh, for, for the can plate printed from one of either ball or, or crown, um, and a wrapped can in, uh, again, ballpark, depending on your kind of supplier relations and whatnot, you're going to be somewhere between like 30 and 40 cents a piece. Um, And so if you, if you go up by, you know, in cost from, again, say ballpark, 13, 14 cents to Mm -hmm. 35 cents, um, that is a difference of several dollars per, per case of your product case being yeah. the, the increments sold to, to distributors, it's a couple dollars per case. And that can be the difference between, you know, essentially making a profit or not making a profit. Wow.
0: Um, what?
1: so, uh, the, I was going to say that the last, the last option other than the wrap is a sticker, um, it's mm-hmm. just a sticker label and that's something that's pretty commonly done. Right. Um, and, and that's some, somewhere between, in terms of cost, it's somewhere between the wrap and the plate print. So you just buy basically a, a blank aluminum can. <clears> mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, your, your labels can range anywhere from like four or five cents a piece to, you know, probably yeah. 12, 13 if you really want to get fancy.
0: So with that, we don't want to turn this into a complete... Well, maybe maybe the whole episode's gonna be about cans. I don't know. <laughs> we never know where these episodes go, right? We just never know.
1: The, we could talk but, for hours on cans, and I won't do that.
0: Okay, cool. Um, I might like that, but everyone like we'll just watch the the episode drop off. Listens like whoop. no. Okay, I do have a couple questions though. Uh, f- when you sleeve a can, like like the Deception Pass can, are you sleeving it, or are you buying it sleeved?
1: We're buying it sleeved from a vendor. So the vendor okay. is buying cans directly from Ball or Crown, and then mm-hmm. they're just buying those blanks, and then they're applying the sleeves and then shipping okay. them in, in very small quantities to their final customer.
0: Okay. So they're kind of buying the, the blanks in bulk. Yep. And, and then breaking them out into smaller lots for, for, for two beers or for XYZ or. Okay. Exactly if, if you guys were going to put stickers on cans, would you be buying them pre-stickered or would you be applying them?
1: We, we would be applying them with the, with the labels, um, on cans, you have to do them, um, after the cans have been filled with beer because the can has to be hard. Okay. Um, and so with the, with the sleeves, yeah, they're done before the cans are filled. Okay. Uh, and then with the stickers, you have to apply them in a in right. a labeler post fill.
0: All right. Let's okay. Good. Okay, that's actually I'm glad because that helps me answer ask my next question. Which is, let's say you guys were going to put stickers on cans. Mm-hmm. How many cans do you have to buy at that point? Can you, you? It's not like you can go down to your local convenience can store and and buy you know a a, a thousand cans. Can or can you?
1: Um. Uh, again, to sort of answer it really top line, it it, it kind of depends on who your who your suppliers are. You can go to Ball or Crown and and buy um buy just they're referred to as silver bullets, just like a okay. a blank completely right. silver can. Um, and you're going to get a really good price on those if you go and buy them unprinted from Baller Crown. But again, okay. you're going to have to buy them in very large quantities.
0: Um, by very large, could it be as as an, quote, small as a trailer or a semi-trailer, or do you have to buy bulk trailers?
1: You could you could buy um you could buy one full semi-trailer, 25 pallets.
0: Okay, okay. Um, that's, a cans. that's a
1: lot of cans. Still, still a lot of cans. Still a lot of cans. Uh, but more often than not, operations that are doing their their own labeling, their stickering, um, they're buying from uh, a, basically an intermediary. So there's a bunch of companies out there um, to name a few. There's CanSource, there's Vessel, there's Gamer, there's... Um, okay craft canning i mean those guys are all getting plugs right now <laughs> um, well, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. that
0: for, for your can those, needs call
1: <laughs> yeah any one of those i mean those are pretty much the the main four here in the pacific right. north northwest but yeah they're buying the the really large lots and then they're just sub subdividing those those huge okay. orders out to smaller operations
0: because you know when you think about what you're doing as a brewery rent in Seattle's cheap so buy oh, yeah. the square foot. Cheap. Rent, rent's yep. cheap. So you've got all the space in the world to stack cans, you know, no, yep. you've got, there's a balancing act here. You, you, you can't, I mean, you, you, got, you only got so many square feet, you can have cans, right? Absolutely. And then, and then we need a, tra- a semi-trailer full. Well, maybe you have the space for that, but you probably don't, or you probably didn't yeah Long, okay so.
1: long-term storage of cans is is um is a huge cost that's often it's often overlooked um mm-hmm. uh because yeah as you said you know rent here in seattle is just is just dirt cheap Keep, nobody wants to cheap. be here and no. um no. uh yeah so it, it's incredibly it's incredibly costly to um you know even even if you're buying the large uh bulk quantities of cans um mm-hmm. and you're saving you know on the per per unit cost initially um that's it yeah it's absolutely something to to factor into the long term you know to to the unit cost essentially if you're going to be storing you know 100 pallets of cans um and your per you know your annual per square foot you know yeah, cost of your building is whatever 14 to 20 dollars a square foot annually yeah It adds up very, very quickly. So yes, um, most of the time it's, it's significantly, uh, better for smaller operations to just purchase cans from that middleman, um, as, as needed. Uh, so if I called,
0: if I called, we're not going to give anybody else a plug. If I called can supplier X on Friday, Mm -hmm. when would I get my cans? um
1: again depends on who you're dealing with um but uh most most places especially if you're just dealing with the blank the silver bullet kind of cans and you're going to be doing the labeling most places are going to be able to get you cans in uh shipped to your facility probably within like 10 days to two weeks um okay so so you're you know pretty quick turnaround
0: Okay, pretty quick, but not not. It's not Amazon Prime delivery. You know, the Amazon's not going to send a fleet of trucks and offload cans for me in two hours. Okay,
1: no, no. Right. Um, and and I think one one other thing to to note is through um, through the pandemic because um, you know I had uh, spoken about how we were heavily with two beers specifically we were heavily draft uh, reliant prior to, to you know sort of the the initial stages of restaurants and bars closing down um, we were not the only ones who made that pivot obviously to no. to, try, to try to put as much of our product as much of our beer into cans as possible. And so as you can imagine, you know if you've got uh, you know just just taking Washington State, for instance, if you've got suddenly you know 200 more craft breweries that are trying to get their hands on cans, um to to you know essentially you stay alive desperately
0: desperately
1: trendy. yes desperately. that's that that is a a very very important distinction um yeah that is going to pretty dramatically increase the demand for cans right and so right. there was um that that large scale pivot um that happened in quarter two of 2020 um in addition to the fact that nobody was drinking anything large-scale in bars and restaurants and so the demand for package product across the board everything soda you know yeah. uh, large-scale national uh national beer brands obviously the the um Hard seltzer, craze, truly, mm-hmm. white claw, et cetera. Everything, the demand for all those products just skyrocketed through the pandemic all of 2020 and into 2021. Mm-hmm. Um and so just getting your hands on cans, period, um, whether you're <laughs> paying top dollar or not, uh, was has been very, very difficult. Yeah. Um okay. <laughs> and and I think anybody who's who's been following uh craft beer that's that's been a a trend in discussion for basically the last year and a half
0: yeah well and it's not like you can spin up a can manufacturing plant you know in your back you know you're not going to open a garage uh you're not going to open a can manufacturer in your garage as a startup these are multi-million dollar facilities with so back in the 90s I used to have, I worked for a vending machine company and one of our clients was the ball plant down in Auburn,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know? And so I would go into that facility and, you know, millions of cans stacked very yeah. high in the air. And yep. they make a lot of noise when they get knocked over. It's just it, it, a lot. I mean, like staggering, like, Oh my, what happened a lot. Um, yeah. And so you have got, you know, hundred thousand square foot warehouse space. It's, this is not something you just, this is, there are no craft can manufacturers. This is, you know, right. big, big scale. Okay. Yep. Well, I, I mean, I could geek out on that for a while. But let's, let's, let's talk. So your background is in, in fabrication and construction and all that. So it really wasn't a, a background in beer making, probably beer consumption and enjoyment. Um, Have you ever, through the decade, have you been involved in the, in the actual making of beer have they have they is that one of the hats that you had to throw on for once in a while
1: yeah um so the the actual brewing process um was not totally foreign to me um i actually um, my parents founded a a winery in uh the willamette valley in in oregon um in 1990 um, and so I grew up, uh, I grew up on a vineyard, a working vineyard, um, and, and with my dad making wine, um,
0: is your dad's name the same as yours?
1: It is. Yes.
0: Yep. So Felix, Felix Madrid random. Well, not really random in research before this, right? So mm-hmm. I, I, I Googled your name, And your profile on LinkedIn pops up, but so does this other Felix Madrid. And it was a winemaker. Oh, "Oh, that was interesting. And now to find out it's your dad. Okay. Yep.
1: All right. Um, He's been around for a few years before me, so he's probably got uh, he's got more on the internet, I'm sure. No, actually, Uh, you
0: you, you came up more than your dad. Okay. um, All right. Well, great. I'm doing something
1: good then. (laughs) Um, So
0: so you grew up, Okay
1: that's uh that's that was my background um and and so i mean just being being around uh fermentation in general um from from you know as as far back as i can remember um definitely you know gave me some uh gave me a leg to stand on in terms of understanding the brewing process my dad also um he would uh He'd probably hate me for saying this, but, you know, he he really, really loves beer as well and, and has been interested in um, some homebrew operations. <clears throat>
0: mm-hmm. Look, there's nothing there's I mean, there's nothing to say that you can't enjoy, you know, beer or wine. They're not mutually exclusive. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. So, you know. Correct. Yeah. Now, Correct. if you say beer and no, just kidding. All right. So you grew so, up, you, you grew up and around this, the, the, around the concepts at least. Yes. Yes. And, okay. um,
1: I, uh, I was heavily involved with the winemaking process from okay. a pretty young age. And I knew that, um, it was not something that I wanted to, to follow in my dad's footsteps. Um, uh that's something that's been um I, I think maybe a point of contention in our family my my grandfather's name um he's still alive is also felix okay um and our i would say just in general um we we have a uh an emphasis in in terms of legacy in the family uh, my grandfather's a a Uh, a doctor and he wanted my father to be a doctor. Um, and my, my dad pursued that and decided that that was not what he wanted to do. Um, so my, my dad's younger brother, my uncle, um, uh, he ended up becoming a a doctor and is now a, he's an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, so that, that box got checked. Uh, but then my dad, um, went off and became, became a winemaker. And I think, uh, my, you know, my grandfather's very, very proud of the, the career that that my dad pursued and ultimately the business that he, that he, uh, developed. Um, but then it was, you know, my turn to sort of decide, okay, well, is this, am I going to follow in the footsteps of my dad? uh, or am I going to go off and do my own thing? And, um, I've always been very, Uh, mechanically inclined. Um, I loved growing up on the farm. I loved, uh, taking things apart. I I was always the, the one doing oil changes on, you know, the farm equipment. And, uh, um, my dad is, um, I would say mechanically inclined enough to get himself into trouble and then, you know, he'll, he'll call me, you know, what did I do here? Um, so, so that was my role. And, and ultimately that kind of led to, to my path in metal metal work fabrication and whatnot, um, to, to summarize that in, um, in sort of the most streamlined way possible. I got a job at a bike shop, um, in high school, uh, And I I've always been really, really, um, uh, I guess into bikes, um, riding, riding road bikes, riding mountain bikes. And I got this job, uh, working as a mechanic when I was 15, yeah, 15. Um, and, uh, the, the shop was owned by my eighth grade, uh, teacher and her husband, um, and. I worked there for about four years and then after um I, I wanted to continue my career in bikes but i knew that i didn't want to be a bike mechanic for forever and ever there's not a lot of money in being a bike mechanic <laughs> probably not uh, um and so I, I paid for a course at uh, ubi which is um united bicycle institute they're sort of like the uh the technical institute that is um that's sort of the, the most highly regarded in the bicycle industry and they do a bunch of like uh different tiers of mechanical courses they offer different uh different sort of like technician certifications as well as they do bicycle frame building courses okay um and so they do um without getting you know i could talk about this literally for a whole nother a whole nother episode i'm sure but <laughs> uh, um th- they do a couple of different different types of frame building um and i chose to do i really wanted to to do titanium tig welded frames um and i had taken uh three or four years of metal fab classes in high school And, uh, I was very familiar with welding, different welding processes. And so I took this course and, uh, built a titanium bike frame, which I still have. Um, and it was, it was really awesome. That's, that's ultimately what I wanted to do at that time. I I had set my, set my sights on becoming a frame builder professionally. Um, and, uh, that, um, that's where that kind of started. Um, so I, I'm going to, yeah. I got
0: to, I got to interrupt you. I got to, I got to yeah. ask you something. So you, You. cause I found this really kind of very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned, you know, you, being a bike mechanic wasn't probably going to be the most lucrative of careers. And, and it's not about the most lucrative of careers. It's, it, I get that. It's about, you know, there's a, you need to make money, but you also want to enjoy what you're doing. Right. Is is there money in being a frame builder
1: um if you're in like the top 5% yes um there's
0: a okay, couple so i know yeah. i know nothing about um, bicycles have two wheels I, I that's about okay you know when you say the top 5% how many frame builders are out there there's a lot <laughs>
1: are might, there yeah that might that might come as a surprise but there's a lot of frame builders out there um and i mean i think huh. a lot of them end up doing it as sort of like a side a side project you know a, a more of a hobby kind of business and and ultimately okay. that's where it ended up for me i i've to I, I don't know so just to sort of skip uh skip over a lot of the middle stuff that's less um, interesting um i did end up uh i've built quite a few frames i think i've built almost 20 bike frames at this point um for various people, some, some, uh, friends and family and some clients who I had no prior relationship with, who just, you know, found me via website, et cetera, but it's not something that I do anymore. I don't have any time for it, but, um, but there are a lot of frame builders who, who operate kind of in that level who just, you know, who might build three or four, or eight frames in a year or something versus like, really really uh highly regarded frame builders who have you know there's there's a couple of frame builders who um I won't necessarily give plugs to you guys can look them up if you want but who who have like two or three year long um waiting lists you know you're gonna put a deposit down on a bike frame and you're not going to get it for 24 to 36 months
0: all right company X and once again bikes have two two wheels that's there's my knowledge. Why would some, I mean, look, we all have hobbies that we spend a lot of money on and people go, why would you do that? I'm like, well, it's because it's, I, so my question is what, what is the benefit of a custom frame to a biking enthusiast? And I know this is, this is probably next to impossible question to answer. What do these frames cost?
1: Benefit uh, or, or benefits are, you know, you and I have totally different bodies and we could we could like the exact same sport and we both want to ride bikes and um you know you and i could be uh i have no idea how tall you are but you and i could be the same height overall Mm -hmm. but my legs are going to be different uh, you know different lengths um with relation to my torso my arm lengths are going to be different than yours and so with um with sort of general off-the-shelf bike sizing um, you don't have bikes are sized essentially um, for a person's overall height and that's going to get you okay. close to, to fitting okay. correctly and there are some things that you can do on the bike itself with components that will make the bike fit a little bit better. You know, there's some adjustability in terms of seat moving that forward and backwards on the rails that are on the seat. You can adjust the seat height up and down. You can put a different, um, stem, which essentially, uh, moves your handlebars either more towards you or farther away. Um, there's lots of different things you can do for small adjustments, but overall the bike frame, when you're talking about a a custom bike frame that is built for you. You're going to get fitted. Um, you're going to have the builder uh, take a bunch of very, very uh, specific, very unique measurements to your body. And then the bike frame is going to be built to optimize. Okay. So
0: it really that. is like a, a, a oversimplifying this, but buying a, a, cause you can spend a lot of money on a bicycle off the shelf. A lot. To oh yeah. A lot of money. Yep. So I go to the local bike store and I've got money to burn mm-hmm. and I go buy a bike for five grand. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I, I know they go more than that, but let's just say five grand Yep. or, but if I'm also going to the store and buying a, a custom suit or a suit from, you know, men's men's warehouse, let's say I can spend five mm-hmm. grand on a suit that's off the rack. Their tailor can make some adjustments or I can go and have somebody actually measure me and build me a suit that fits me in, Exactly. Somebody yep. else. Okay. Yep. All right. So these are really then just finely tuned to the person's physical measurements. All right. Yep. I know yep. this is. Not, I know. So t- I'm that. Is that like what are these things called? I'm just curious. So what does a, a a bespoke custom frame? What's the range here?
1: That's the thing that's that's um, I think maybe more surprising is that there really isn't like a huge price premium. Um, Mm. you're gonna, you know, I I, honestly, your, your number of like $5,000 going into a bike shop and spending five grand is going to get you like that. That's pretty reasonable. That's going to get you a really nice high end, Mm um, bike that is not custom, but you know, that's, that's, it's an extremely nice bike and it will, um, it'll ride very well and you'll be able to get that bike with with small adjustments you'll be able to get that bike to fit you pretty well Mm -hmm. Um, you know if you're talking about uh getting a custom frame built um i would say on the total bike build you know all all components included you're probably talking, you know, a twenty-five to thirty percent premium on that five thousand.
0: Okay. So that's um, really, I mean, it's a lot of money, but that's not a lot of money, right? Like, you and know, if you this is you're not telling me a ten x,
1: no, 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 no. If and this is something that you know, if you're a lot of a lot of people who are in this kind of category who are looking for custom frames, they're putting, you know, a um, hundred a um, hundred to 200 miles on their bike a week, you know? Right. So um, it's, it's, you know, you can go out and blow three to $8,000 wow. on a set of, you know, skis and boots and stuff, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's, uh it's, it is expensive and I'm not downplaying that, but, uh, no, but no,
0: it's, no, it's no, not but in there's... the realm of absurdity. Right. Well, and you know, you can go buy, you know, you can go spend a lot of money on any, any sort of hobby. So, all right. Well, instead of a rabbit hole, we went down a bike path. All right. Yep. Indeed. I had no idea we were going to go there. so yeah, I warned you about this. You know? So, let's come, let's like circle, pull me back into the beer business. Your current job, we'll, we'll just skip over how you got to the current job. Your current job, what's a typical day look like for you?
1: Well, um, I think that it is worth Saying that the path to get to my current position was um, there, there were multiple phases along the way, and so basically, I I was hired as this contract fabricator. I then mm-hmm. got. Um, more involved with um, to to sort of to very briefly touch on your your comment earlier, asking me if I had ever actually brewed beer. Um, I got more involved with the process end of things, and because of my background in in winemaking and and understanding fermentation to a pretty high degree, um, that that helped me sort of be a, a pretty well rounded employee in in the beer business and and also ultimately cider Um, and and cider is very very similar to winemaking in terms of its total process much more similar Mm -hmm. than beer Um, Mm -hmm. and so i i went uh i i went along the path that i did and basically moved from this contract um, fabricator to working as more of a facilities engineer Um, then moving into sort of a a lead position in that, in that realm, um, I had mentioned earlier, (laughs) Mike Cameron, who had been sort of the stand, uh, stand in lead engineer prior to, to my arrival at two beers. Um, he ended up leaving, uh, leaving the company in 2019. Um, and then at that time, um, I made the jump to operations manager here for both Seattle cider and two beers. And so that was sort of the, the shift that was my, my career shift, if you will, going from pretty much a purely technical role here into more of a, a administrative position. Okay. Um, and then, uh, the GM position, um, that I, Am now occupying has just been since February, um, okay. and so uh, I, I think that information is relevant to your question. What does a typical yeah. day look like? Um, I have uh, a heavily operations-based background, um, mm-hmm. and um, I there's a lot of things going on here in in our facility. At all times um and i and i really really enjoy the fact that i um, understand uh very intimately all of the the processes that we have going on here and so um there's a lot of really large scale sort of um uh broad uh broad projects if you will broad initiatives that are that are being managed at a very high level on a data on a mm-hmm. day-to-day basis and these are things that um you know that are long-term um you know long-term initiatives for the company. S- stuff that is going to be uh, actualized you see somewhere between three and six months maybe a year maybe two years from now and that is uh that's some of my day you know planning for uh forecasting um and just general project management and keeping things moving forward um but because of my my heavily operations-based background um i have a, a pretty intimate relationship with um you know, our, our day-to-day actual production processes, what cider is being produced, what beer is being produced, um, our packaging team, our logistics team. Um, so, I mean, I can, I can go into more detail if you want in any of those categories, but, uh, it's, it's, I, I have a, a very, very diverse day-to-day to be honest.
0: Okay. Well, that's, I mean, to me, that would be great. I couldn't, I myself wouldn't want to sit there, you know, forecasting eight hours a day, five days a week would not be, not be my thing.
1: No, drive me
0: nuts. It would not be my thing. Well, let's, one question that should probably started off. Well, yeah, I should have started off with this question Two Beers Brewing Company. How, where'd that name come from? What's the story there?
1: Well, um, the the founder Joel Vandenbrink, um, he as far as far as I've heard the story, um, there was a conversation uh, that he had at one point with one of his friends, um, uh, where there was some sort of um, there was some sort of disagreement or something, and the the way that I have been the way that I was told was that, uh, they had a couple of beers. They sat down. I don't know where this was, but the comment at the end of the conversation was, well, I guess life's just a little more honest after two beers. Um, and that is our current tagline. Um, and that's, that's where the name came from.
0: That's a cool story. That's a cool story. So, from a beer standpoint, what are you guys currently producing? What, what what what's the you know, we've got the Deception Pass. I'm looking at Wonderland Trail, Southern Resident. You've got a pilsner.
1: Yeah, um, we we produce. So, I guess going back to the um, the draft versus packaged um, sort of conundrum of earlier, yeah. uh, we produce now. Just the beers that you have listed there. So we have okay. um, uh, we have Wonderland Trail, we have Southern Resident, which are both IPAs. Wonderland Trail is a is a pretty um, I would say a pretty well not standard. I want to say hmm, what's the word? It is a uh, Pacific Northwest IPA in in its aroma flavor profile it's a it's a classic pacific northwest ipa um okay uh southern resident is a a more modern it's a hazy um relatively low haze so it's not like a super thick hazy ipa which i I think is is um what a lot of people think as soon as they hear the word hazy but um lightly Mm -hmm. hazy um it is hopped with uh chinook um chinook hops those are it's a salmon safe hop and it is in partnership with uh the sea Dock society um and so okay. they do a lot of marine uh conservation work and the southern resident name comes from the southern resident um orca whale pod that lives in the puget sound Prim- primarily okay. resides in the puget sound um and so that's uh that's a really pretty tasty uh pretty tasty hazy ipa really love that beer um we also produce as you said a pilsner um this is a uh heavily award award award-winning pilsner um it's won uh medals with the um, sip northwest um, magazine or publication i should say Mm uh both uh gold double gold and platinum um It's a fantastic, um, fantastic pilsner. If you haven't tried it, definitely do. Um, We also have some seasonals. So the Deception Pass Summer Ale is uh, a beer that we are um, that we have produced in uh, cooperation with the Deception Pass Park Foundation. Um, Mm -hmm. And they are Deception Pass this year is celebrating their 100th year anniversary. And so this beer um, is in support of that. And uh, a portion of all of the proceeds go to the Deception Pass Park Foundation to keep um, interpretive programs operational and to make sure that the um, the park stays open, hopefully another 100 years oh. or more.
0: That's, that's cool that you guys are partnering with something like that. That's That's a very cool thing.
1: Yeah, this, uh, this actually, this weekend, um, I think Saturday is one of their large, uh, large events at the park. We're going to be up there um, along with several other breweries, um, pouring product, and it's going to be a good time. Nice.
0: Um, I, yeah. I am on your beer finder. Mm-hmm. And without going into too much detail. Where, so... We're all the show is just about Washington State, but do you guys ship out to other states? So, the the brewery's reach
1: is much, uh, much smaller than the cider company. Um, Mm -hmm. the brewery, uh, is primarily Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Alaska. Um, okay, and most of that comes from. Beer, no matter no matter who's making it, beer um, falls off in flavor and aroma after several months, um, mm-hmm. and you want to drink beer as fresh as possible. Um,
0: so that explains why Budweiser. <sighs>
1: That does that kidding. does explain. Actually, I'm kidding? Yes, yes. No, um, no,
0: no, no, Lawyers need to contact. Yeah, me yeah, before, yeah. Just kidding.
1: You're gonna get uh, you're gonna get some legal documents showing up at your doorstep here. Um, just kidding. So basically, the the farther you ship the beer, um, the, the worse it's gonna be. Uh, just sure. purely from from a logistical standpoint, you know, if it ends up in okay. two or three or four different warehouses, by the time it ends up in a retail shelf um it's it's not going to be the same beer so um the brewery is um is large enough for distribution large-scale distribution you know we're found in grocery stores we are found in qfc fred meyer pcc met market etc um okay but we don't we're not big enough to have a super fast distribution network where we're going to be able to get our beer, you know, say to Chicago or New York in two days and have it show up on a retail shelf a week later. Um, right. Right. And so that's, that's the primary difference between, um, between two beers and Seattle cider company. Seattle Cider's reach is significantly um, wider and more distributed all the way to the East Coast, North Carolina, um, Massachusetts, yeah, have you a guys, pretty, pretty large Midwest presence as well.
0: So if, if whoever's, when you're listening, if you, we have a, another episode with the, with Seattle Cider, so we can, you can go, if you want to know more about that side of the story, you can go listen to that episode. So yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes for that one there shameless pitch to listen to another one of my shows. Um, (laughs) One of the things we didn't, I don't think I did as as good a job of covering when the Seattle cider episode, and I'd like you to pick up the slack is you guys have the woods. Yes. Tell, please tell the audience about the woods.
1: So, um, you know, right out of the gates, you were asking me um, about, Two Beers and Seattle Cider, and there often is a little bit of confusion. Okay, is this one company with two kind of DBAs? Is this two separate companies, et cetera? <clears throat> and mm-hmm. Two Beers and Seattle Cider are two, two completely different companies. They have um, different sets of employees for, for each of the two companies, but there is some overlap at the management uh, leadership mm-hmm. level. Um, and, and you know, early on, you said, "Hey, are you the GM of both?" Yes, I am. Um, and we have like a single national marketing director. We have a single national sales director, um, et cetera. So at the very high level, we have there's crossover between the two. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but in terms of our products, uh, public-facing and being available in a tap room, we have the Woods and the woods is, um, its own entity altogether. Um, okay. We (laughs) to, to make matters more confusing. Um, okay.
0: Are you the GM of that?
1: (laughs) Uh, yes. I mean, technically, yes. Um, (laughs) okay. (laughs) We'll add another, excuse me. We'll add another title in there just for the perfect
0: the heck of it um you know yet another hat for you to swap out today later. yes
1: yes <laughs> so we have we have the woods um and the woods in its current uh iteration has been um uh has been a thing since 2015 yeah 2015 um was when we built out the um built out the the new tap room as as we have referred to it uh this is sort of like the third third, well, third kind of main iteration of the woods. Um, if you had come by and wanted to grab a a beer from us, um, prior to 2015, you would have come to a, a very small little storefront, um, that's adjacent to where the brew house is currently. Um, and there was, you know, like four tables and, and basically like a, like a 10 or 12 top, uh, bar um Mm -hmm. so pretty pretty small space and and the woods now occupies i think about four thousand roughly four thousand square feet so it's a much larger space um we have uh sort of a two-tiered outdoor patio um and like a total occupancy of a couple of hundred so it's it's a much 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 larger space now um but we have uh we have 36 total taps Um, and that's pretty much divided down the middle more or less between beer and cider. Um, so I have something for everybody and, um, since we're trying to keep this more beer focused, uh, the beers that I had mentioned that end up in package, um, are the, the beers that we produce obviously for retail, but we produce a lot of other beers that will never be put into a can and those beers are for the most part only available in the tap room um, Oh, okay so we do a lot of um a lot of trial uh so we will brew new beers that might end up in package you know six months from now or a year from now um right and obviously it's not with anything you know you're not just gonna brew a beer one time and and say yep that's that's the one and it ends up in a can um it it has to go through uh generally many iterations before it ends up being you know exactly what we're looking for so the tap room is where we um we have a lot of things that we're working on you know on on tap um there's uh oftentimes we'll pull things that um uh that are really, really special that have been in keg, um, for special events. So we have like an annual, um, anniversary party for both two beers and Seattle cider, uh, separately, but we'll pull, um, we'll pull barrel aged stuff that we've, that we've had in cold storage, um, for, you know, a couple of years, uh, the, brewery's anniversary is in the fall and so we'll have some like darker darker beers and whatnot that we brew specifically for that um so yeah the the woods is a really really cool spot we have um also a uh a third party um food truck company that operates uh out of the woods they have a um a full production kitchen there where they do all of the prep work for their two food trucks, but then they also offer, uh, food services to the the clients of the woods and and they're called bread
0: and, and, that's circuses. Bread and circuses, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yep. So right. they have a, a pretty, pretty solid, like they're elevated pub food. You know, they have, um, maybe three or four different kinds of burgers. They have some different sandwiches, uh, two or three salads. You know, you can get it's, it's, sure. um, it's tasty stuff.
0: And you guys are still, you guys are doing live music on the weekends, right?
1: Yeah. Not, not every weekend, but, um, our, our current, uh, bar manager has been booking some shows and, um, we've definitely, uh, had a lot of really positive feedback from that. So,
0: yeah. Well, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. You said, the, the woods is about four thousand square feet and the first thought that went through my head was you could put a lot of cans in there <laughs> yeah you could you could put a lot of cans in there
1: it's uh <laughs>
0: sorry that was my like wait can storage yeah
1: yeah for real yeah. for real it's been a it's okay. been a real struggle this year honestly
0: what's the future look like what do you guys I, I and i'm not asking you to give me like trade secrets and all that but what's what's kind of the future what's what's and you can talk about cider and beer, too, because you guys just released a, a light cider. We did, was, yep. Um, an, an, a very interesting thing. Um, but what's kind of, what's on the horizon?
1: Well, um, I mean, as we are moving into uh, what seems like a recession, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the R word. Um, it is... Uh, as we
0: pivot into a recession we, how about that Let's as we pivot yeah, yeah. we
1: will use both of the bad words Sorry. uh as we both pivot of the bad words yeah. as we pivot into a recession um there's obviously um you know a lot of unknown in terms of what you know what the economy is going to look like in the next 3 months 6 months year um but uh you know we are um we're focused on making the best beer that we can make, making the best cider that we can make. Um, we are looking at um, the the packaged products that we currently offer. We're doing um, a sort of a branding refresh. A lot of the uh, a lot of the packaging that we have currently has been in market for somewhere between two and four years. Um, And we've made some changes to the beers in that, in that timeframe. Um, Mm -hmm. some, some improvements. And I think that from, from a branding perspective and, um, just a, a a general brand perception, um, a refresh is, is needed, um, to, to represent a lot of those positive changes. Um, and so we're, uh, we have just now. Uh, refreshed the Southern resident packaging and that will be available in, re- in retail stores here in the next week or so.
0: Um, okay. So about the time this episode comes out, the cans will look different.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, they, they look really, really, really sharp. Um, the The boxes are incredible. Um, and I think they do a better job of highlighting the relationship Um, the partnership that we have with uh, the cdocs society so um nice if you if anybody's uh curious about that there's a qr code on the carton now that will take you directly to the partnership page that we have and kind of it uh it's a little bit more inclusive rather than just sort of like expecting people to to know what's going on um okay uh wonderland trail um we are we're actually after I think seven years we're changing partners. So the Wonderland Trail IPA um, is named for the Wonderland Trail um, that uh, circumnavigates Mount Rainier Um, and we have worked with uh, the Washington National Parks Fund um, for as I said I think seven years um, and they've been a really good partner for us um and this year we are uh pivoting there's that word again um to partner with uh the Washington Trails Association um mm-hmm. and that is coming from we so we had worked with WTA Washington Trails Association in the past um but as a non sort of like mainstream partner they they were involved with some of our um some of our like smaller community partnership efforts, um, but uh, they've been um, they've been a, a great uh, organization in Washington State for promoting going outside and going on hikes and um, and mm-hmm. supporting the infrastructure that we have in terms of keeping trails clean and and building new trails um, and because of the um the huge growth that the seattle metro area has seen in the last several years um that's becoming increasingly um relevant and important to making sure that you know that the infrastructure that we that we have um is well well maintained and, and also that we're being good you know good stewards of the environment because a lot of people moving into seattle um do enjoy the the camping hiking backpacking lifestyle and when you have a huge influx of population um, to an area it can become uh you know it can be damaging to that to that environment very very quickly so it's really important to have organizations like wta um, doing what they're doing so we're now um changing that partnership to uh from the Washington National Parks Fund to WTA and that um, all that information will be um, indicated on the new Wonderland Trail packaging as well. Um, okay. So those are some some sort of bigger things on the horizon for two beers. Um, I guess, to touch briefly with, uh, on Seattle cider, as you said, uh, we just launched light cider, um, which we're, we're extremely excited about. And that honestly is, um, I think it is relevant to, to just beer in general, because it's, it's, we're, we're trying to create a category within cider that is slightly more beer adjacent. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, there's a, there's a huge population of people who drink uh, light beer as a as a primary, you know, um, even if it's, uh, you know, you don't necessarily need to um, need to like, you know, Budweiser, Miller, or Coors, or whatever. But a lot of people will go to the grocery store and still pick up a six pack of Rainier, um, a six pack of you know a local craft pilsner, such as our own. Um, and there's there's a, a very very large uh, total of the of the beer category that that's that's what they drink and so um, with Seattle cider uh, most of our ciders are not are not super beer adjacent um, and if you're you're into um, beer as a primary and cider is not really your thing uh, we don't have or we hadn't had a good good offering or a good answer to that but light cider is um is hopefully that uh hopefully an answer to that it's 4.2 percent abv so it's relatively low alcohol um especially Mm -hmm. as compared to some of our other our other products and um it's just uh it's something that is targeted towards um people who are interested in like a light beer option um i uh I think it's an incredible product. It's very, very Apple forward. Um, Mm -hmm. it's very, it's very tasty. Yeah. Very, very clean, easy drinking. Um, and so we're, yeah, that's, I I really liked it. That's kind of the, the big push for Seattle cider at the moment.
0: Okay. Well, as we wrap this up, let me ask you a couple of questions. So when you're not wearing all the hats as the GM, what do you like to do? I, I mean, we already know you're, you're a bike enthusiast, but what do you like to do for fun and recreation? Um, the two big
1: ones for me, uh, I've, um, I've loved motorcycles uh, about as long as I've liked bicycles, um, two wheel transportation. Uh, so I, I ride, um, I have a, a zero SRF. Um, it is a fully electric, uh, naked street bike. Um, and I ride that a lot. It's a really, really, really cool motorcycle. Um, and Did you just say fully electric? Fully electric. Yep. Yep. Um, it is, there's only a couple of companies out there right now who are doing um, doing motorcycles that are fully electric in this category. Uh, Zero's been around for, I think, like 11 or 12, maybe 13 years. Um, so they've, they've got a, a pretty pretty good history. Um, and yeah, it's, it's something very special.
0: So I know less about motorcycles than I do about bicycles.
1: Okay. What do you you want to know?
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. What the heck? Let's just go. (laughs) So what does this bike look like? Is it, it, does it so here, here's my here's my really layman's terms does it look like a, a quote-unquote crotch rocket or does it look like a harley or what does it
1: closer what's it like closer to a, a crotch rocket uh i think okay. that's that term is pretty widely understood what that looks like so i think so. yeah clo- closer to that it's it is um it's technical uh classification is naked street bike and and what the naked refers to is that there are no there are no wind fairings of any sort. There's nothing on the bike that um, that uh, makes it exceptionally aerodynamic. So it has like an exoskeleton okay. sort of tubular metal frame. Um, okay. And one of the one of the earlier motorcycles that sort of pioneered this um, this aesthetic is the uh, Ducati monster. Um, that, that motorcycle has been around for quite a long time and is a pretty iconic, um, looking motorcycle. And this, this is in that category.
0: All right. Before you got this electric motorcycle, what were you riding?
1: I had a Ducati scrambler. Um, it's much more classic looking.
0: All right. So, When I think electric vehicles, I think, you know, Tesla with the ludicrous mode and, you know, zero to 60 blink of an eye. Is an electric bike like that as well?
1: Uh, It is very, very fast. Yes. Um, There, (laughs) this motorcycle does not have a particularly high top speed. Um, There's a, there's a lot of.
0: What is its particularly not high top speed?
1: It's, it's top speed, I believe is 140 miles an hour.
0: And what have you gotten it to?
1: 140 miles an hour. Um, yeah, I, I've
0: topped okay. it out. I've topped it out. Um, and and how was that? Was it? So help me out. So a buddy of mine is a is a huge bike guy. Mm-hmm. Riding. Okay, the Ducati Scrambler that you had before. What was its top speed?
1: Uh, probably like one you might saw them 110 maybe 115 something like that okay
0: and i'm gonna guess this is i'm going out on a limb here but you might have topped that one out once or twice uh
1: yeah i did yes
0: yep (laughs) yeah okay compare and contrast these two bikes is
1: the so the scrambler is a a pretty classic uh seating position you're very upright your back straight up and you're Mm -hmm. sort of like you're not you're not really forward on um on the bike Um, and it's a much more classic style. Um, you know, anybody who's listening to this, if you just type in Google Ducati scrambler, it's, it's kind of like what you think of as like just a, a classically looking motorcycle. Um, they're, they're attractive, but they're not, they're, they're not necessarily performance, um, centric, you know, um, okay. The motorcycle that I'm currently riding, the zero SRF is, is much more aggressive. It's still in, in the naked street bike sort of, sort of subcategory of motorcycles. It's still not, um, fully like forward aggressive position, racing position, like a, like a true crotch rocket, as we referred to earlier. Um, but you're much more forward, you're much more, um, aggressively positioned on the motorcycle. And this motorcycle specifically is, is absolutely performance, uh, as a primary. So, so it, it, it's, 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 unbelievably fast um again not in terms of its top (laughs) speed the top speed being uh, you know 140 um yeah that's just you there you you can go out you can buy a um a crotch rocket a true crotch rocket you know a yamaha r1 or something that's a very common motorcycle a a honda cbr 1000 and those bikes are going to go to 180 190 miles an hour top speed but okay Uh, getting, so from, from a zero, from a stop to Mm -hmm. even a hundred miles an hour, there, none of these motorcycles that I just mentioned would, would even hold a candle to the SRF. Um, I have, I've raced, um, I, I, I raced, uh, my cousin actually, um, on a, Uh, let's see, it was a Kawasaki Z 900. Um, so also it's another naked street bike very much in the same, in the exact same category. as the zero SRF and we were doing, this was safely on roads in the desert in central Oregon, so away from everybody. But we were, uh, doing zero to, you know, zero to top out, um, in quarter mile runs and The Z900 was not even a contender. It couldn't, there were, it just, it just can't accelerate fast enough. Like the, like the electric bike can.
0: All right. We could go down this, but one last motorcycle question about this bike. Yep. Well, two, two part question. What's its range on a charge and how long does it take to charge it up again?
1: Um, very top line. It totally range totally depends on how hard you're riding the bike. Um, if you if you're trying to get range and you're trying to ride it economically speaking, um, you can get about a hundred miles on
0: on a charge. Okay. Um, well, now if you're if you're racing in Central Oregon,
1: you'll um, get if if you're doing like repeated just absolute fastest top out acceleration kind of runs, um, you'll probably get like forty or fifty miles
0: okay and then how long does it take to charge this thing up
1: from uh, you have a couple of different options from like a 110 outlet um the bike comes with a charger and you can just plug it into a standard regular wall outlet okay. um, it'll take uh, from like a like a true zero to 100 percent charge a full battery charge it would take about six hours. Um,
0: Oh, that's that's still pretty long. If if you
1: um, you're almost never gonna be depleting the battery like that though. So like for instance, if you were to ride, you know, charge it overnight, and you were to ride it around, you know, you commuted on it and you put Mm -hmm. whatever. Again, you're trying to ride it economically, but you put 40 miles on it, and so you come back with a 60% charge you're going to plug it in again to your 110 outlet and it's going to take you probably two hours or so to, to okay. build it back up to hundred percent. However, if you go to a level two charger, which are the EV charging stations that are everywhere all over now, um, mm-hmm. a zero to a hundred. And again, you're never going to be at zero. Like it's kind of an unrealistic right. scenario, but zero to a hundred is only going to take you about an hour and a half. Um, and, you know topping it up going from 70 you know 60 70 percent battery up back up to 100 it's only going to take you maybe 40 30 40 minutes
0: with this level two station then could you go to you know like a tesla charging station and are is that's the same sort of charger that
1: tesla has two different kinds um they so they have standard they have their own version of a level two um and then they have their superchargers um Mm -hmm. the bike will not accept the supercharging stations uh those are only those are tesla only um but uh i i have an adapter piece that the tesla level two stations plug into and then it will charge my motorcycle and it's the same uh the same sort of charge time yeah
0: all right so you're well i'm noticing this trend i'm you know you said mountain biking so i'm going to think you're one of those guys that likes to go down the hills really fast yes i like that very much um you you have an electric rocket that you ride around on yep you had a you know gas powered rocket that you ride around rode around on or maybe still do yep who knows what you're driving for a car. Next thing you know, you're probably going to tell me, well, yeah, I've got a, you know, a McLaren or something that I commute to the, the warehouse." In.
1: No, uh, the uh, beer and cider industry is not that, not that lucrative. <laughs> yeah. I, I know. <laughs> uh, are you, a,
0: are you a fan of caffeine? Love coffee. Love coffee. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to end this one with this. So coffee, where's a great place for coffee in the Seattle area that I might not have heard of. Because I've I've drank a lot of coffee in Seattle, so I you know, and if if you if you say Starbucks, I'm just going to hit the delete button. No, just I just leave
1: but, studio. I'm out of here. Yes,
0: <laughs> Episode's gone. no. And but what do you like in co- What what's your coffee? What do you like? Um,
1: I would say, I mean, if if you're looking for uh, looking for a shop that is not. Um, or, or a, a cafe, if you will, that's not, yeah. uh, commonly known. There's a really good one in Columbia city. So, uh, Southeast Seattle, um, that is called empire. Um, yep. owned by, uh, two gentlemen, Ian and natural are their, their names. Um, and, uh, really, really, really good coffee, like phenomenal espresso, um, I would definitely recommend either getting an espresso or macchiato, something that's going to highlight their, their uh, coffee, their coffee. Um, -hmm. I mean, obviously you can go in there and get whatever you want, but that's, that's, that would be my one, my one, my one sort of recommend. Obviously there are a bunch of really, really good places. Um, you can go to, um, either the two Vivace locations on Capitol Hill, you know, David Schomer. Those are great. OG, OG coffee guy. What
0: do you, uh, what's your go-to beverage?
1: Um, I mean, nine times out of 10, I'm going to get an espresso. Um, just a, an ab, uh, just a, a, pure dopio. Really? Yeah.
0: You're one of those guys.
1: Yeah. Um, in fact, okay. uh, the, the coffee shop that I, um, that I go to pretty much every morning so i live down in georgetown um uh, georgetown's all the way south seattle for anybody who is listening and doesn't know where it's at but uh it's kind of in the industrial industrial district of seattle and that's also where uh both two beers seattle cider and the woods are located um sort of in a georgetown soto crossroads area but that's besides the point um and there's a there's a cafe in Georgetown called All City. Uh, it's been around for okay. a long, long time, and I'm I go there I would say at least four four days a week. Um okay. And uh, my my regular that uh, r- regular order that I that I don't even have to say anymore. I'm I'm that kind of customer. Uh, is an espresso, a soda water, and a 12 ounce americano. So I have my espresso we do along
0: just fine. Yeah. yeah. I, have,
1: I have my espresso yeah, there just fine. while, uh, while they're pulling the second shot for the Americano. And um, then I leave with my Americano and sip that for the first hour or so that I'm at
0: work. That's awesome. All right. We'll to wrap this as, as he's taking a sip of coffee right now, folks. Yep. So to wrap this up, my ending questions always, what didn't I ask you that I should have?
1: Oh man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a loaded question, Scott. Uh, uh, I, I think honestly, you know, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you and I think we could, we could do two or three or five or 10 more episodes if you wanted to with a lot of different, a, a lot of different things.
0: Um, yeah, we could, we could certainly unpack some of these two wheeled, uh, transportation models, um, and how they pertain to Washington. So maybe we should talk off mic about that. Yeah. First off, We've been talking for an hour and a half, which is longer than we normally have an episode, and I've enjoyed every second of it. So thank you so much for making the time to to talk with me today. Really appreciate absolutely. it. Absolutely. And I I look forward to seeing what Two Beers in Seattle Cider keeps doing. And um uh, I yeah, we need to talk about the woods and live music. So we'll do that later. But anyway, thank you, Felix, for being here. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Scott.